Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, founder and CEO of Frazier Communications, the leading woman-owned and woman-led advertising communications firm in Southern California. We bring you the Talk, Read, Sing campaign throughout the state of California to help parents know how important it is to engage with their children in those first five years for First Five California. The Deciders features leaders, change agents, educators, researchers who share their stories and insights so that we can help businesses grow smarter and improve their impact. On The Deciders, we often explore how we can help women advance into greater leadership roles with tips and shedding light on successful leaders and approaches. But when we look at the situation of women today, you probably know women have been the hardest hit by the COVID pandemic. In April 2020, more than 12 million women lost their jobs in a single month as schools were closed and many, many daycares situations went out of business. The ability for women to work and the demands of providing childcare were an obvious conflict. And I understand that 4 million dropped out of the workplace entirely. Well, my guest today is the labor economist at Rand Corporation. She has studied the effects of these job losses. This is Catherine Edwards. She's the professor at, uh, she is at the Rand Corporation and a professor at the Party Rand Graduate School. Most people don't know, but there's an amazing graduate school within the Rand Corporation. So she's obviously educating our bright young people and is, as I said, the labor economist. Catherine, welcome to the Deciders. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'd love you to start by talking about the research on women in the labor force and why it's so important to the economy. Absolutely. So we think about the labor force participation of workers. When you think about the size of the economy, the U.S. economy is not some abstract concept. It doesn't mean different things to different people. You know, it is a number that accounts for the final value of goods and services produced. About 70% of our economy is the consumption of U.S. households. Mm. And a very kind of strong and clear and steady relationship over time is per worker GDP. Mm. That is that the size of our economy is very much a reflection of the number of people who are working, not the number of people in our country, but the number of people who are working. This makes the labor force participation of certain groups vital to how our economy grows at any given time and in trends into the future. Uh, this is understandable, maybe in the sense of the baby boomers. For a long time, people have been worried that the retirement of the baby boomers would start to clip on economic growth because we'd have fewer workers. They were such a large cohort and they're, and they're leaving the labor force. But that same logic applies to women. About half of the U.S. Uh, uh, is female, right. but they do not have the same labor force participation rates as men. However, between 1950 and 2000, their labor force participation doubled from around 30 percent to around 60 percent. And it's been in a 20 year stall since then. So when we talk about women workers, we're not necessarily or solely talking about a social movement, a cultural movement, a woman's identity and how that relates to her ability or willingness to earn money. We're also talking about, from a cold-hearted economist's point of view, how big is our economy and who's determining that? 
Right. So I hear what you're saying is by women working, it strengthens our economy. We actually, I I, uh, am a big fan of leading women leading in uh, in business as well as government and looking at other countries, Japan, for example, when women drop out of the workforce, it has hurt their economy. And that's what you're saying. If we don't have women fully engaged as workers, we actually it actually slows down the GDP. What do you think has stalled the uh, engagement of women in the workforce? place in in the last 20 years since 2000? There are a lot of potential reasons. And I don't think that any one reason and its contribution can be perfectly understood. And some of this is still guesswork and looking at trends and differences in trends. But we do know that, you know, 30 years ago, the U.S. was much more of a leader in terms of women's labor force participation than it is now uh, compared to our peer industrialized countries. And the the difference between those countries then and those countries now is broad systematic support for working parents. So child United- really a critical part of it, right? If women is, know they have a really quality child care, then they're much more willing to work. At least I find that in, in the women I hire. Uh, they'll drop out if they don't feel they have the right care for their children. It's that. It's, and it's also worker protections that women are more likely to be vulnerable to. So for example, one in four private sector workers in the United States does not have a paid sick day. Children under four get about five colds a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't square that math if I have to, you know, be out of work to take care of my kid, but I don't get paid for it, or I might lose my job because I don't have the protection from it if I miss a shift or miss work. So this, there's there's vulnerabilities from more, being more likely to be low wage uh, workers, and then there's vulnerabilities from being working parents. But yes, I think the United States, in addition to one in four private sector workers not having paid sick leave, uh, there is no guarantee of paid family leave. Uh, for the birth of a child, uh, for the woman or the man, and there uh, we don't have affordable and accessible childcare. And those in combination that other countries have, you know, really attacked as part of a broad agenda to support workers and parents, we we have not done here. And I, you know, I will say that mostly every study that has looked at some kind of marginal increase on any dimension, right? An increase in paid leave, an increase in daycare that's provided has found that it increases women's work or it increases women's earnings or both. That's right. It also, I think, uh, it brings a lot of self-esteem and accomplishment uh, to women and to the family. I, I, I know that many policymakers, uh, particularly in California, but nationally as, a, as well, are aware of this. I think one of the problems we have is that the child care system is a patchwork system of commercial facilities, home-based providers, nannies, grandparents, et cetera, filling the gap. And uh, child care assistance for working parents isn't guaranteed in the United States, as you said, in some other countries. It is. Uh, I'll just say as an aside, First Five California was very concerned about this. And when COVID started, uh, we worked with them to make sure that some of the funds they had went into diapers and books and wipes and went to the actual child care facilities so they could use them at their facilities and distribute them. But I think we see some progress, right? The uh, Biden has a plan for U.S. child care. How do you feel about that? And can you talk a little bit about what that might mean? Yeah, it's, it's so hard for a question like this to answer as just a, a like a cold-blooded labor economist because I am a working mother. And, you know, my first reaction has to be, you know, my, my mother should have had all of this when she was working, when she had me, 
you know, and my brother and sister 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not a matter of it being time. It's a matter of it being long overdue to provide basic supports for working parents that are guaranteed of all workers and not just those workers who have a high enough income uh, to command it from their employer. That's true. I mean, I, you know, I in my nonprofit work, I serve on a number of boards, one of which has been the Volunteers of America, and they have a Head Start program. And I was quite impressed. Head Start is for families living at or below the poverty level. Uh, and the reason this is so valuable, of course, is those folks are making less money, and Head Start is a federally funded program, which really makes a difference in children's reading ability and their ability to go to school. I understand the median cost for infant care in the child care center is $10,700. $759 per year. That's a lot. And with a median income of 65000 boy, that's paying you know, more than 20%, close to 20% of your salary. And that's your median income. That doesn't mean after taxes, right, in, uh, in funds for childcare. So it's, it's a costly enterprise. It is a, it's also has high geographic dispersion in terms of cost, which, which is remarkable when you think about the fact that public school costs every parent the same amount of money, but childcare from zero to five or zero to six does not. Hmm. Uh, and I know, for example, you know, in our nation's capital where I reside, um, I would just blush if I told you how much I paid for infant care and how much more it was than my mortgage. And it absolutely makes you question, you know, if you should really work at all, if you're, if you're doing it because you're stubborn and and less so because it actually makes sense. Um, That's a real problem, isn't it? Because I think among low income women and husbands and wives, grandparents, parents look at the funds and say, well, wait a minute, if it's an even trade-off, why should I do that? And Unfortunately, people of color tend to be more more of the folks on the lower income spectrum. And as we know, there's a divide, an achievement divide that exists in the United States. And I feel that not having a paid child care system is actually perpetuating that divide. Well, it's a two-way street as well because childcare work is relatively low paid and women of color are also the most likely to be childcare workers. So it's it's a service that they provide at a low cost but cannot afford at a high cost, um, which, you know, which just kind of screams inefficiencies uh, and the need for you know, better regulatory and provisions and in, in investment. Um, and I think, you know, it's, you know, people get relatively almost shocked at the idea of having more provision of, of government provision of child care. But I think that they would be up in arms if every school district in America said, actually, we can only afford to start you at second grade. Yes. Right. And, I, and the idea of going up of saying, well, you know, kindergarten was not something that was present in all public schools throughout the 20th century. It was added over time. Um, the idea that we would just not have kindergarten anymore. You just start at first grade or we can't afford elementary. You just start your kid at fifth grade. People would see that as, you know, we, it limits my choices, it limits my income. I don't think my kid will be as well off if they're not socialized in this, you know, equal setting. Uh, but if you say, well, I think we should go down to four or three uh, or two, then people get up in arms about what does it say about the family and does the government really belong there where the cutoff that decides what's normal now isn't necessarily one that is you know, arrived upon because this is the best place for women to stop paying for daycare and and kids to start enrolling in school. And we have the examples of other countries to to show what those effects can be. But I think, you know, my 
for my part, you know, when you talk to people about this, it gets very personal very quickly because you're basically saying that the thing that I want, which is a, you know, uh, center-based care is something that the government should invest in because it has dividends for the economy. But if the thing that I want is to stay at home with my kid, right, then if the government invests in center-based care, are they saying that my decision is wrong? Well, and don't I, you think it's a matter of choice, though? I, my, I think you need to. I think the point you're making as an economist is, in order to enable more women to be in the workforce and meet their full potential, we have to give them options. Uh, we have to cover sick care, as you mentioned, paid family leave. But I'm really pleased that the American Families Plan would spend money to improve uh, child care. As I understand it, the funding would improve the quality of the programs, $15 minimum wage, expand training for early childhood caregivers, and then reduce the cost of care. So I think we're moving in the right direction. So the people have choice. Yes. And, and yeah, and to the extent that we have choice now, right, being backed into a corner doesn't really feel like you have freedom of movement. Um, I think that the one thing that we have learned from the pandemic, right, I mean, all the evidence for why we need to invest in childcare, it was there in March of last year. But what we, I think what the pandemic has showed us is just how constrained so many women were because of childcare and in-person schooling that, that it's not just, I have this preference to put my kid in center-based care. It is, if I don't have center-based care, I cannot have a job. And we saw people, we saw women leaving and we saw women reducing their hours and that this it, it illustrated just how much of a constraint the lack of childcare or the lack of, you know, at any age can can introduce. You're right. It, it made it so more point, so much more poignant. And I, I know that you and I both have friends, colleagues, where it never even occurred to the husband, you know, to stay home and do the homeschooling. It's always fallen on the burden of the women, right? And and that's not always for bad reasons. Um, I think there are a lot of bad reasons in there, but I mean, people specialize in the household, right? We, you know, it's not like I do the dishes and I stop halfway through and I like throw up my hands top chef style until my husband, <laughs> like we split chores, you have to finish them, right? I mean, you, I, I do the dishes, he does the laundry. I pick up the kids, you know, uh, he picks up the mail. That doesn't right. really sound that equivalent, but I mean, you end up, it makes sense for most families to have someone specialize in the care parts. And that becomes the woman for a lot of reasons, good reasons, you know, she prefers to, and also bad reasons, you know, she can't make as much money as him. He has a better job. One One of them has to be flexible. You know, the way that I explain it would be by the time it's, it's, it's path dependent, you know, by the time a woman decides I need to leave the workforce because of this caregiving burden in a pandemic, she's probably made concessions, you know, years and years before that of like, who took the flexible job, who had the job that had travel, who could be there at five, you know, 15, no matter what, or pay a dollar, you know, a minute by minute fine for how late they were for picking up their kid, right? Like we, you had already made accommodations in order to meet this need. And when the need became greater, someone was in a better position to accommodate. Yes, it's a real trade-off. Absolutely. The parents have to make, I have to tell you a funny story. I I was a worker and uh, also the one who picked up the kids from uh, school, preschool. And I'll never forget, I was late to pick them up. As you said, it's like minute by minute charge. Plus, I didn't want my child to be the last one there, my, my two daughters. So as I got off the freeway, I saw a police car behind me, right? Mm-hmm. 
And he pulled me over and I said, I'll, I, I don't mind paying the ticket, but please follow me to the preschool. I've just got to pick up my kids, please. And he was so kind. He actually did. He <laughs> drove with me. It was, you know, it was like three blocks away. I was so close because, you know, by the time he wrote the ticket and looked up my information. And, and so I introduced the kids to the cop and he was nice. <laughs> I actually don't remember if I really got the ticket, but he did follow me to the daycare center. And that's the pressure you feel, you know, and, and uh, I'll say this too, for the women listening, uh, I, my experience is you feel guilty on both sides. You leave the office and you know, there are people there still working or, or now you leave zoom and you get there and you know that you're also, you know, asking the kids to stay till five 30 or six o'clock and some of them get picked up earlier. There's just, there's this, uh, this, uh, this tremendous sense of guilt that I at least used to feel, but, uh, but you know, my, my daughters are now grown and they're young women with children of their own. And when I asked them, they said, I did the right thing. They said, Mom, you loved what you did. We knew it because you talked about it all the time. And, uh, and we learned from you about how to, how to have a job and how to manage. And they turned out pretty well. So knock on wood, uh, I did something right. Uh, so you can work and you could, can have uh, children in a, in a quality. If, if you have your children in quality daycare, you can feel much better about it. And of course, we know there's a learning benefit as well. Let me just mention what's in this American Families Plan, because I'm, I'm also advocating for that as some of our folks listen. Uh, they're talking about establishing universal preschool for all three and four-year-olds and guaranteeing up to 12 weeks of paid family leave and medical leave for all workers. And, and as we just said a moment ago, Catherine, you said it so well, women and men have the choice. Kids don't have to go, but it shouldn't be a burden to them. Because you see that it's gotten much worse now with the pandemic. It has. Uh, and, there's, and there's evidence of, you know, being able to accommodate a child demands inches and inches every day. And the pandemic blew that need a mile wide, right? And, and there were people who, who didn't have that much room and who dropped out of the labor force and they might not come back. Um, I think there's very legitimate concern that a lot of women who have left uh, will never recover their income uh, and or possibly ever go back to work. And that's a good choice for their family. I mean, it's if, if they decide that their family can live on, live on one income and they prefer to be home and that they, you know, they, they've changed their preferences. That's good for that family. I mean, none of this is none of this is um, a judgment on what women decide to do. The question is, are there women who would work if they could? And because of a federal investment, we can we can accelerate that process. Right. So we you know, we think about this choice in one direction. A woman decides to stay home and she can afford to. But the the you know, does a woman want to go to work but can't manage it or accommodate it? One of those, you know, has a potential for a very large economic gain because you're adding a worker to the economy. And so, you know, even if you, <laughs> this is, this is going to sound bad, even if you hate children and you particularly despise women, right. And you don't want to give them money and you don't want to, you know, your, your neighbor has kids and you don't, and you don't see why your tax dollars should go to help those kids go to preschool. Right. The, the cold calculus here is that it's an investment in helping people go to work and earn more money, which it which does have broad dividends for our economy, especially coming out of a recession. That's a really good point. 
Yeah, we want we want to make sure that women who choose to work can do that and and support the economy and help it grow stronger, which is is as you're saying, it really will. Is there a figure for the amount of um, GDP that's lost by the number of people who are not working? Is there a way to calibrate that? People have looked at it in terms of they've also done this for the labor force participation and earnings of really any gap relative to white men. So women, black men, black women, Hispanic men, Hispanic women, and, and various people have estimated it, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's about the uh, it's just a, it's, I think you can think of it as just a flat subtraction. One fewer worker is a slightly less, uh, you know, large economy. I mean, our economy is always growing because our population is growing. And outside of recessions, we see expansions. It's it's really, it's not a matter of becoming larger or smaller. It's really about clipping our own wings. Right, exactly. Right. And, and I think uh, unleashing the opportunity. You know, one of the segments that we haven't focused on are single parents, single women and single men who are raising families of their own, they definitely need childcare as an option. It's hard to be a single person and, and maintain a household if you don't have some economic game, right? If you don't have some income. So the program that we're talking about with the American Families Act would really go a long way to help single parents maintain their presence in the workforce, not have to rely on other uh, forms of support, and grow the economy at the same time. Do you have any knowledge of the data in terms of single parents versus people in married situations that left the workforce? I haven't looked at that in particular. I've looked more on how the labor force declines vary by the number of children uh, as opposed to the number of parents. No. So Tell we, we the number. Yeah, it's, well, it's not good, but, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to kind of measure in real time why a woman has left the labor force right now, because a lot of women who without kids lost their job uh, in the pandemic initially, in addition to women with children. And there are lots of, you know, children are not the only people who need caregiving at any given time. Women are also much more likely to look after ill family members uh, including siblings and parents. And so how much can we say of what the decline is right now is just because of childcare and school versus all these other things that are going on. So the way that I looked at it was really about providing intuition for how much childcare could, could matter. And so we looked at women who had different number of children it's basically a variation in how much childcare they need, right? Do you have one kid versus three kids? We also looked at the age of kids. So do you have an infant versus a toddler, which that was actually quite funny. I, I originally did the analysis and one of my colleagues who had a four-year-old and a two-year-old at the time said, these are not one for one. <laughs> you're, she's like, your nine month old in- infant is not the same as my three year old. That's right. The amount of time they need. And what we found was, you know, the more, the more care you need, the more women left the labor force. So women with three or more kids left at higher rates than two left at higher rates than one women who had a toddler from two to six at their house. Uh, they left at higher rates than women who had, say, infants or teenagers. Makes sense. Makes sense. I think, you know, also when you look at the online school program, you know that people who had to, they really didn't want to leave, abandon their children if they had to manage the online presence. And that's been a big um, obligation. Also, hopefully that's changing in the fall. Uh, We'll end with any uh, note of optimism. Do you have anything that you see happening that you're (laughs) optimistic about in this realm? We're having this conversation in a lot 
large scale for the first time, you know, in my lifetime. We've never talked about childcare investments like this. We've never made it, you know, part of our national conversation and acknowledgement that women can't work if we don't have more investments in childcare. There are lots of responses to that. There are lots of people who would say, well, I don't want to work and therefore, you know, we shouldn't have childcare or people who will say, you know, I I needed, you know, 10 years ago, where have you been? But I, I you know, the, just the level of acknowledgement in our society and economy that not having care holds back women's work. I mean, again, we should, my mom should have benefited from that conversation, but, that's but okay. I'm glad that you we're know? finally having it. No, and that's, that's okay. what makes me the most I, optimistic is that sometimes the most convincing evidence is, is the, is the negative. Catherine, I'll take that as progress, even though it would have been good for us to be talking about these things 10, 15, 25, 30 years ago. The fact that we're having a really candid discussion about it and women can openly talk about their need for childcare, and we've seen the dramatic effects of it, I'll take as progress. And I think the American Families Act is, is a very good evidence of the fact that it's at the policy level and the politicians see it. So I'm going uh, to be positive about this. And thank yeah, you no, so I, much for sharing your insight. I, I, yeah, and, and you know, and and I'll I'll add, you know, that um, I think that there's a misconception of, especially single moms, kind of what you brought up, that there is just this really large number of women who have kids who get benefits from the government that don't need any more help, and we ended the cash entitlement to welfare in 1996 uh, when I was 10 years old. And so for two and a half decades, we have not had cash entitlement for single mothers who are low income. They can get those benefits, but they're they're very difficult. And the number of people who get them have dropped uh, precipitously. So when we talk about making investments, I think it's important to remember that we're talking about making investments in, in workers and families. And that this is not, you know, not a handout. It's, it's not, not a handout. Hand. We we have such a negative view of single moms, and we don't we don't ever really piece together that they often work more than they work more than married moms, right? And we we tend to characterize people in our economy without understanding them. And I think working moms, working parents, and single moms they they can be some of the the most misunderstood. And I think most most people are shocked when I tell them that black women work at much higher rates than white women. That's right, Catherine. You know, we're going to have to close with that. You're absolutely right. This has been Catherine Edwards, the labor economist at the Rand Corporation. We've learned a lot about women's working and how important it is for the American Families Act to be passed for change to happen. Thank you for spending time with us on The Deciders. You can hear our podcast anytime on our website at FraserCommunications.com. We're a full service advertising firm. You can find us at FraserCommunications.com. We'll be back next week here on The Deciders with Renee Frazier. Have a wonderful week ahead.